Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hey, welcome along to Gateway. If you happen to be visiting with us on this long weekend, we're glad that you're here. Um, you've joined us, if you're a visitor, on an evening where we've, we're involved in a series um, out of the book of Ecclesiastes that we've called Solomon in a Postmodern World. And this is the third message in that series. Um, we're following a character, Solomon, through a search for the meaning of life. I started the series off by using an analogy or a metaphor that C.S. Lewis uses when he talks about the fact that human life in some respects is like a fleet of ships at sea. And as you're watching this fleet of ships, number one, you notice that they're all in formation. Number two, you notice that each particular vessel is seaworthy and that you would imagine that they would have some understanding of what their mission was, why they are at sea. And Lewis used that metaphor and talked about the fact that uh, the, the fleet in ordered formation is like social ethics. It's how we get on with other people in an ordered way. We don't crash and bang into one another, um, but we, we are ordered. Oh, I just saw someone crash and bump into somebody. So, um, uh, The second thing is each vessel is individually seaworthy, and that's like individual ethics. The third issue of why we are at sea is normative ethics. And the reality is our culture focuses incredibly on social ethics. Not so much on individual ethics. Actually, it basically says we don't care what you do in private so long as you don't bump into people in public. So your social ethics is your choice. You do what you like. Just don't impinge on the rights of anybody else. So we are highly focused on social ethics. We don't particularly care about individual ethics. We are completely ignorant when it comes to normative ethics. If you ask people in our society, why, why, what's your purpose in life? Why do you exist? What's the reason you are here? There is generally a, just a shrug of the shoulders. Who could possibly know? Well, this man went on a journey to find out what is the sum and bonum in life? What's the meaning of life? Why are we here? And he's looking, he's doing the search under the sun. That's a phrase that's used at least 29 times in these 12 chapters, and when you take variations on it, it's, it's nearly 50 times in just 12 chapters. This search is done on a horizontal level with no respect to the vertical level. He's doing a search without taking any account of God, of revelation, or of spiritual realities in his search. He's trying, without any divine help at all, to, tr to figure out his sailing orders. Why is he at sea? Why, what's the meaning of life? Last week, we followed him as he walked down two particularly well-trodden paths. One is the road to enlightenment. The other is the road to enjoyment. Enlightenment is the pursuit of the life of the mind. It's trying to discover meaning through the pursuit of wisdom and knowledge. And his ultimate conclusion is it doesn't deliver. 
you, you will never find the meaning of life going down that track. It just produces vexation and sorrow. So he turned from that way of seeking the meaning of life and he went down the road of enjoyment. Now, that road can be uh, uptown hedonism or downtown hedonism. It can be get smashed or get art. It can be crass or it can be refined. But Solomon basically says, look, doesn't matter how far you go down that road either, it's chasing the wind. It will never satisfy you. So tonight I want to pick up in our study from where we left off. We've basically made our way through to chapter 2 and verse 12. I'm reading on in the message translation. And it says this, And then I took a hard look at what is smart and what is stupid. What's left to do after you've been king? That's a hard act to follow. You just do what you can and that's it. But I did see that it's better to be smart than stupid just as light is better than darkness. Even so, though the smart ones see where they're going and the stupid ones grope in the dark, they're all the same in the end. One fate for all, and that's it. When I realized that my fate is the same as the fool's, I had to ask, so why bother being wise? It's all smoke, nothing but smoke. The smart and the stupid both disappear out of sight. In a day or two, they're both forgotten. Yes, both the smart and the stupid die, and that's it. I hate life. As far as I can see, what happens on earth is a bad business. It's smoke and spitting into the wind. And I hated everything I'd accomplished and accumulated on the earth. It can't, I can't take it with me. No, I have to leave it to whoever comes after me, whether they're worthy or worthless, and who's to tell? They'll take over the earthly results of my intense thinking and hard work, smoke. That's when I called it quits, gave up on anything that could be hoped for on this earth. Then it goes into chapter 3, and for those of you who happen to be listening to the music during the break, you'd probably be thinking, why are they playing a secular song like that? Well, it's the song that the birds made famous in the 60s called Turn, 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 and it's built out of these verses where it goes, there's an opportune time to do things, a right time for everything on the earth, a right time for birth and another for death, a right time to plant and another to reap, a right time to kill and another to heal, a right time to destroy and another to to construct, a right time to cry and another to laugh, a right time to lament and another to cheer, a right time to make love and another time to abstain, a right time to embrace and another time to part, a right time to search and another time to count your losses, a right time to hold on and another to let go, a right time to rip out and another to mend, a right time to shut up and another to speak up, a right time to love and another to hate, a right time to wage war and another to make peace. But in the end, does it really make a difference what anyone does? This man has tried the way of enlightenment. He's tried the way of enjoyment. One of the things that he does observe is that although wisdom increases sorrow and vexation, all other things being equal, being wise is better than the alternative, being stupid. Wisdom is better than folly, he says. Living in the light is better than crashing around in the dark. But, and this is a huge issue, he said, in the end, it doesn't really matter because the same fate awaits us all. It awaits the wise man and it awaits the fool. And in verse 15, he says, I said in my heart, what happens to the fool will happen to me. Why then be so very wise? And I said in my heart, this also is vanity. In essence, he's saying, listen, it doesn't matter what you achieve in life. You're going to end up dead, and you're going to leave it all behind. Made me think of U2's song, Walk On, when they sang, you know, all that you fashion, 
all that you make, all that you build, all that you break, all that you measure, all that you feel, all this you can leave behind. He's saying death is the great equalizer, or maybe even more appropriately, death is the great vaporizer. And this is a refrain that he repeats again and again through the book of Ecclesiastes. Death is no respecter of persons. And though in our society particularly we try and push that away as much as is possible, and we go through life desperately trying to deny the, the reality and finality of death, nonetheless in those quiet moments when we are alone, we're haunted by it. Ernest Becker was a Pulitzer Prize winning author for his book, The Denial of Death. And in it, Becker claims that human civilization is actually an elaborate symbolic defense mechanism against the knowledge of our mortality. And he talks about the fact that we as people embark on what he calls immortality projects in the hope that somehow we will create something that will last forever and give us meaning. Like the ancient pharaohs, we build our personal pyramids hoping that somehow they will make us immortal, but they can't and we aren't. And Solomon is really getting into the swing of this despair thing. And he notes, not only do you both die, wise and foolish, the smart and the stupid, he said, both disappear out of sight. And in a day or two, they are forgotten. Doesn't matter whether you're wise or stupid. Sooner or later, you'll be completely forgotten. Somebody once complimented the famous author Sir Walter Scott and remarked that the quality of his work would mean that his reputation would be secured for generations to come. And he responded wearily, posthumous reputation is a bubble. Somebody said the same to actually to Woody Allen, the filmmaker, and they asked him about his desire to leave a lasting memorial through his films. And in classic Woody Allen comic style, he said, I don't want to achieve immortality through my work. I want to achieve it by not dying. Kind of reminds me of the guy who had a T-shirt and on the front of it said, I plan to live forever. On the back of it, it had so far, so good. <laughs> Alexander the Great learned the same lesson in a dramatic fashion from his friend Diogenes, the philosopher. He found Diogenes one day standing out in the field looking intently at a pile of bones. And Alexander said, what are you doing? And Diogenes responded, I'm searching for your, the bones of your father, Philip. I can't seem to distinguish them from the bones of the slaves. Philip II, Alexander the Great's father, was king of Macedonia, part of the famous Argead dynasty. But in death, Diogenes noticed his bones were indistinguishable from slaves. Solomon is thinking about this. He's observing this. And he realizes that one fate comes to us all, wise, foolish, famous, infamous. And this fate is extinction. And that robs every person of dignity and every project of its point. It's futile, he says. It's completely meaningless. And he gets to the place where he says, I hate life. He goes deeper later in the book. Not only does he say, I hate life, and, you know, I guess the worst we would imagine we could say is, I wish I was dead. Well, he goes even beyond that and says, I wish I was never alive in the first place. I wish I was never born. A child never born is better off than me, the king of Israel, with all this that I have at my hands. That's what under the sun living produces. 
When you don't have some kind of vertical relationship and you stop and think, you come to this place. So I don't think like that. No, that's because you've got so many rats and mice in your life in terms of diversion that you don't see the elephant in the room. And the elephant in the room is, you will end as Solomon said. And, and that's a depressing thought without a relationship with God. The famous atheist Voltaire writing to a friend said, I hate life, but I'm desperately afraid to die. That's Solomon's dilemma. Now, from verse 21 to the end of the chapter, Solomon starts talking about his work and the, and the futility of work. I'm going to skip that, and we'll probably come back to it later in our study. I want to go straight into chapter 3 where Solomon starts turning his attention toward time. And given the mood of what he said up to this time, we might expect him to begin to lament how short time is, how fleeting it is, about the tyranny that it exercises over us. Perhaps somewhat like the American author Horace Mann who once put an advertisement in a paper and it said, lost yesterday, somewhere between sunrise and sunset, two golden hours, each set with 60 diamond minutes, no reward is offered, they are gone forever. Just here and gone. What Solomon does, though, is he pens what is probably the world's most famous poem on the subject of time. And even people who have never read the Bible have probably heard this poem. They probably heard it through that song. Pete Seeger wrote Turn, Turn, Turn in the 1950s. The birds made it a massive hit in the 1960s. <coughs> Excuse me. The poem is made up of a parallel series of related opposites. Each pair forms what is known as a mirrorism. It's a figure of speech in which the two polarities make up the whole. For example, when the Bible says God made the heaven and the earth, what it means is and everything in between. <coughs> when it says there's a right time for birth and another for death, birth and death comprise the whole human existence. A right time to cry, another to laugh, summarize the full range of human emotions. So there's something incredibly comprehensive about each of the pairs. There are 14 of those pairs. For those of you who are interested in Bible numerics, the number seven is the number of perfection. You multiply that, you get 14, which, which is the idea of perfection and completion. And these mirrorisms cover the whole sweep of human existence. And Solomon observes that life comes and goes with seasonal regularity. Nothing lasts forever. Everything is subject to change. Now, it's quite hard to know what Solomon had in mind as he's penning these famous lines. Some commentator thinks that this is Solomon beginning his journey back from the dark side of despair and that in this poem there's a note of hope injected into the darkness. I, I suspect that it's actually more of the same. Given the mood of what follows the poem and what has led up to it, this is more likely to be a continuation of his pessimism, a very poetic one, but he's fatalistic about existence. Time is an absolute and arbitrary master, and he's expressing the sense of being absolutely imprisoned by this sequence of comings and goings. One commentator calls this portion the hopelessness of struggle against an arbitrary God. He's trapped in time and feels incredibly fatalistic about his existence. 
existence. It certainly fits with what has come up to this point and what leads on from it. God, if he's there at all, Solomon thinks, is an absolute and arbitrary master. Now, perhaps we will never know exactly what it is that Solomon had in mind, but what I would love to do with you is just consider a little bit about Solomon's reflection on the issue of time and the seasons in the light of what the rest of the Bible, particularly the New Testament, has to say about them. Solomon's observation that seasons come and go rings true for us all. It's very, very true, of course, in the natural world. Agrarian societies have built their lives around the seasonal rhythms of nature for thousands of years. Even though most of us live in an urban society now, we still are incredibly impacted by the seasons. They, they, they exercise a huge impact on our lives. And what's true in the natural is also true in the realm of of our individual lives. We go through seasons. We have times of incredible joy. We can have times of deep and seemingly in the midst of the time, never-ending sorrow. We can have seasons of prosperity or times of privation. I guess the ultimate question is, who calls the tune? Who decides what seasons come and go? Is it choice or simply chance? If it's choice, whose choice is it? You know, the position of many secularists, the materialists in our society who deny the possibility of any above-the-sun perspective, they would say it's absolute chance. Impersonal forces over which you have absolutely no control direct your life. Biological Darwinism has taken us down that road. We are apparently simply on this planet by virtue of a lucky random collision of at atoms that somehow hung together in the primordial soup and then became life and then through random mutations produced what we see all around us now. The role of the cosmic dice. Richard Dawkins, who very much adheres to that little scenario that I just painted, says that we simply dance to our DNA. We have no choices. We are biologically determined. Pure, unadulterated chance luck. And of course, you hear people colloquially saying things like, well, it's just one of those things. His number was up or whatever it is they say. As a believer, I find that position absolutely untenable when I consider that whole issue of origins. I don't know how you sit, but for me, to believe that the life, the order, the design, the beauty that I see around about me is simply random accidental forces, for me at least, requires a greater leap of faith than I am capable of. You know, to go further and say, as some scientists do, that all this emerged from absolutely nothing, to me is philosophically absurd. Now, Stephen Hawking is probably the world's most famous living scientist. He has recently, relatively at least, written a book with Leonard Mlodinow that was called The Grand Design. And in it, Mlodinow and Hawking make the claim that because in the beginning there was the law of gravity and quantum fluctuations existing, then they say, and I quote, the universe can and in fact will create itself out of nothing. And you want to just stop and say, I know these men are brilliant, but what, what did they just say? These men are pure genius when it comes to cosmology, but quite frankly, they'd get an F for philosophy and logic. 
to say that the universe can and will create itself out of nothing, from nothing, by virtue of the law of gravity and quantum fluctuations. Listen, gravity and quantum fluctuations are not nothing. They are something. So these men have just redefined nothing. They are simultaneously asserting that the universe was created out of nothing from something. Now, nonsense remains nonsense even when very famous people speak it. I'll leave it at that, okay? If you want to go there, you go there. That, for me, is untenable. Not only is random chance untenable for me in the issue of origins, random chance for me in the issue of destiny is as untenable. I do not believe that I am or you are hopeless in the face of your DNA. I'm not saying it doesn't have an effect. Of course it does. But if we are morally responsible creatures, then you do not simply dance to your DNA. And I can't accept biological determinism. I don't think the movement of planetary bodies determines my destiny in terms of astrology any more than I believe in the extreme theological uh, determinism of Calvinism, which says I'm just a puppet in, in God's hands, and whether I'm saved or damned, that's his choice, and I have no say in it. I'm sorry, but I believe we are morally free creatures. We are morally responsible creatures. The choices we make and the characters we create, you and I will stand accountable before the judgment seat of Christ for those choices and for that character. And to simply say, I'm sorry, but I was dancing to my DNA is just not going to cut the mustard on that day. For such judgment to have any validity at all, there must be some degree of freedom. I've got to be able to choose my actions. To hold a person responsible and culpable for actions over which they have absolutely no control is an exercise in injustice, not injustice. So I'd like to suggest to you that the seasons and your response to the seasonal changes in life aren't about chance at all. Now, if they're not about chance, then they have to be about choice. And the next question is, so whose choice? Well, some humanists would say, yours. Life is your oyster. Make it what you want it to be. You know, the pop psychology that just fills our world. Dream your dreams. Follow the stars. You can be whatever you want to be. Now, listen, I know there's a modicum of truth in that. But you tell that to an autistic kid. You tell that to a Down syndrome child. You tell that, just them aside, you tell that to most of the children in the two-thirds world and have them look at you with eyes ablaze and, are you serious? That kind of pop psychology really only does float in the Western world and among relatively prosperous people. Follow your dreams. You can be whatever you want to be, really. Hmm, I wonder. William Ernest Henley wrote a poem called Invictus, and in that poem he said, I am the master of my own fate. I am the captain of my own soul. I choose. You know, to claim that we choose and that we control the seasons and times of our lives seemed to me, at least anyway, to be an act of unwarranted hubris, if not complete absolute delusion. To such a person who said, I control my own life and I'm captain of my own vessel. I've got stuff put away and I'm going to live 
and let the good times roll. To such a person, Jesus said, you fool. Tonight your soul will be required of you. And the rich man died that night. That's how much control you have over the lives, uh, over your life and over the seasons. Absolute hubris. Jesus, uh, uh, some people, some people would say, well, okay, I think other people's choices have dramatically impacted, shaped, and maybe locked me in to certain seasons of life. My parents, my abuser, my employer, the government, a doctor, a pastor, a teacher, their choices and the way they damaged me threw me into a way of seeing life, threw me into seasons that I haven't been able to extract myself from. You know, I, I, I don't mean to suggest that, they, that some people haven't been dramatically shaped and impacted by the poor choices of other people. The unfaithfulness of a spouse, the misdiagnosis of a medical professional, the fickleness of an employer or a friend, that can dramatically impact our lives. They, they can shape us, without doubt. I, I, I don't intend to minimize that. But do they have the ultimate word? And I would want to suggest to you, and I think most of you ultimately would say, you know what? No, they don't. And if you're not sure, then can I recommend that you read a book by Viktor Frankl called Man's Search for Meaning? Viktor Frankl was a Jewish doctor who was incarcerated by the Nazis, put into the concentration camp, managed to be one of the very few survivors, and on getting out, wrote this amazing book. And he argued that no matter how severe the circumstances, even in a Nazi concentration camp, when all can be taken from you, you are never left with nothing. You retain the freedom to choose how you will respond to the season that you're engaged in. You have that choice. Nathan Sharansky was a Jewish dissident in the former USSR. He was arrested and imprisoned, and he wrote an inspiring book on his uh, release called Fear No Evil. He, he was gripped by the deep conviction that ultimately, though he could not control the times and the seasons, he could determine how he responded to them. He, he, de he decided he would not let his captives Captors define him, and he said, nothing they can do can humiliate me. I alone can humiliate myself. So, so we can't affect the choices that other people make regarding us. We can't always control the seasons that we find ourselves in, but there is a measure of responsibility and control that we do have that is not related simply to chance. The question then is, well, who does control the seasons? I think the revelation of Scripture seems to me to be that God in his sovereignty is over all of the seasons. I'm not saying that everything that happens within the season is his direct action, because lots of things happen within those seasons that I think God would want to distance himself from and say had nothing to do with that. But I think he retains that sovereign control. I think that, for example, is the core message of the book of Daniel where empires are coming and going, kings are raised and are put down, and over and over again in the book of Daniel it says, and the most high rules in the kingdom of men. Ecclesiastes starts off, and the Good News translation of the Bible says, everything that happens in this world happens at the time God chooses. 
And it's he that sets the times and then goes into the merisms, the time of birth, the time of death. We clearly did not choose the day of our birth. And the euthanasia debate aside, we will not choose the day we die. We don't put into our diary a month in advance a season of great rejoicing. Because we don't know, we might be thrust into the grief of a family funeral. This is not to say that as Solomon has been saying, we are just, you know, this is fatalism. Now it's divine fate, but, but we don't have any control. I don't think Solomon's saying that. I don't think that the New Testament particularly teaches that. We might not be able to control the seasons that come and go, but we do have a responsibility in terms of how we act within those seasons. Fate simply says, put up with it. There's nothing you can do. You're at the mercy of the tyranny of time, which is where Solomon seemed to sit. Faith asks, what is God doing? How can I respond to what he's doing? Now, when the natural seasons come, I'm I'm free to defy or resist the seasons if I want to. I can laugh at winter and go round in shorts and singlet. Or if summer comes, I can mock summer and go around wearing clothes that are more suitable to the environment at the South Pole. However, in addition to looking rather stupid, I will have to live with the consequences of my choosing, which in this case could be either hypothermia or heat exhaustion. The New Testament seems to teach that wisdom and discernment requires us to look and say, what God, what, what's God doing? What's, what's happening here? How can I respond to what he's doing so that his purposes get worked in my life in this season? You know, when you look at the life of Jesus, he constantly lamented that the people of his time were largely insensitive to what was happening round about them. They didn't see the season that they were in. And he says things to them how, like this. He says, how is it that you can discern the face of the sky? You can see what weather is coming tomorrow, but you don't know the season you're in. That's Luke chapter 12, verse 56. Later on, he weeps over Jerusalem and he says, you didn't know the season of visitation that had come in my person. How could you not see it? The clear implication was they should have seen it. It was there to be seen. Many, in fact, did see it and those who didn't were culpable. They didn't see it because they wouldn't see it. Jesus certainly lived his life with an incredible sense of what season he was in. You read the book of John, and one of the phrases that keeps coming up through the book of John is this phrase, my time or my hour. You could loosely translate it if you wanted it, my season. So at the very beginning of his ministry, Jesus' mum Mary is trying to get him to help with some wine that's run out at a wedding. And uh, Jesus says to a woman, what is this to do with me? My time has not yet come. It's not yet the right season for this. Now, further on in John chapter 7, his brothers are trying to get him to go up to Jerusalem. They're mocking him and saying, if you are the real deal, go up to Jerusalem, prove yourself by showing your credentials. Jesus says, it's not my time yet. You go. It's always your season. You go. It is not my season. In the shadow of the cross, John 17, Jesus starts praying and he says, Father, the time has come. This, this, this idea had haunted his life. He was so very aware of the season and of the time. Now, to then say to people like you and me, and you should be regarding yours, 
is probably to place a burden on most of us that we go, oh, holy cow, sometimes I don't know what's up and what's down, let alone whether it's summer or winter in my life. You know, I don't always know. And, and look, you know what? I completely get that because I've lived large portions of my life and if you said to me, Don, what season are you in? I don't know that I could have told you with accuracy. Now, one thing I have noticed in my life is I do see the seasons better in hindsight. As I look back, and it occurred to me this morning just while I was sitting and thinking about this, that when you're on a river, when you're in the flow of a river, sometimes you can look down where you're going, and around the bend you can think, I think round the bend is, and, and, and there's a sense of foresight. Sometimes you're looking at, at where you are in the river presently, and, and that's like insight into the present. There are times when you turn around and you look back down the river in hindsight, but you are, whether you're looking back, sideways, or forward, you are in that prophetic flow. And the fact that you're looking back and working something out in hindsight doesn't mean you've missed God. You're not in the prophetic flow. Prophecy works in three tenses, future, foresight, present, insight, past, hindsight. And you can actually be in God's prophetic flow for your life and yet only seeing the season that you've been through in hindsight. So, so I've decided not to panic about those things. And I say with David, my times are in your hands. Have your way, Lord. I mean, I'd like to know where I'm at, and sometimes I really do. And there are some times when I look and I think, I think this is what God's doing. And in hindsight, I think that was what God did. When you live with an above-the-sun perspective, you aren't living like Solomon under the sun. You live with an above-the-sun perspective, and life comes in its seasons, and sometimes really difficult seasons come. Even in those seasons, I think we can look with a sense of real faith that whatever it is, even when it's difficult, even when it's nasty, that somehow, out of that season, God, the divine alchemist, can take the base metals of life and turn them into gold that really work for you. That's what Romans chapter 8 talks about. You know, that all things can work together for good to those who are committed to his purpose and in that prophetic flow for his life and are saying, Lord, have your way. You know what? Over my life, I've had some experiences that I would never want to repeat. But I tell you, I also wouldn't want to trade them. And I, you think, well, I don't know how that works, Don. I don't know what you mean. Well, I, I suspect many of you do. And if you don't now, you will later. Things that I would not want to repeat, but I don't want to trade either. I do know that if life were left to me, if it were my responsibility to choose the seasons, I would always choose high summer. Okay? Because I like... Nice, sunny days. I don't like trouble. I know one thing about me, and, and, and it's that I'm more interested in my comfort than my character. I know one thing about God. He's more interested in my character than my comfort, and he regularly disturbs that to get what he wants. If I could choose sunny days, but the Arabs have a, sun, uh, have a, have a proverb that says, all sunshine makes desert, and the mariners have a similar one that says, fair weather never made a sailor. And the reality is we need all the seasons. And hard seasons can work things in us that easy seasons never do. Solomon living 
under the sun, couldn't see purpose or meaning in any of the seasons. It was all futile to him. It's all chasing the wind, he said. What's the point of it? What's the good of it? It goes nowhere. We all end up dead and forgotten. That's such an under the sun, such a postmodern conclusion. And you know what? It makes me think when he says it's like shepherding the wind. You ever tried to do that? Guard the wind and get it into a paddock? He says it's as stupid as that. It made me think of another conversation about wind that happened in the New Testament. It happened when Jesus was sitting with probably one of Israel's most prominent teachers late at night. And as the habit is in the Middle East at night, to go up onto a rooftop terrace where the, in, the evening winds blow in beautifully cool after such incredibly hot days. And Nicodemus is sitting there with Jesus and he's struggling to try and get to terms with what he sees happening around him. He sees a season that's fermenting and changing and he's saying, I know that you're a person sent from God, but, but you don't look like what I thought you would look like. How, how's this working? And Jesus says to him effectively, you'll never see it unless you're born again. You'll never see it unless there is a change of perspective where you move from under the sun to seeing above the sun. And if you can be born again, you will see what I'm doing. And then he goes on to say, and what is happening, this, this move of season is like the wind. The spirit is like wind and he's mysterious and he blows where he will and you'll, come, you'll struggle to come to terms with what he does and where he does it and to whom he does it. But the fact that there's mystery here doesn't mean that you have to miss out. You won't understand everything. But if you hoist your sails, you can be captured by the wind. Open your heart, Nicodemus. Be born again. Let there come a different perspective, and although you can't control the wind, the wind can control you. Even when it's a headwind, when it's blowing full in your face, good, sea, good sailors know how to tack. And even when the wind's blowing in their face, they can tack and make progress. And, and it's in the tacking and in the progress against the wind that sailors are made. Really good sailors are made. Life isn't random, and it isn't pointless. And I want to tell you, when you're being led by the wind, even though sometimes it's mysterious, sometimes you don't understand fully all that's happening, but your sail is hoisted and you're saying, breathe on me, Lord, breathe on me. You can be led, you can be tacked into the very purposes of God for your life. Listen, I want to finish with this sentence. You can't shepherd the wind, but you can and should be shepherded by the wind. It's your call. It's your choice. You can live like Solomon if you want to. But Solomon's been down the road that you are now thinking about trying. He is an expert in the fields that you are dabbling in. And he said, I'm telling you, they end up here. Don't live like that. Get an above the sun perspective. Open your life to the wind. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.